You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnis. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. All business. What's happening? How you doing this week? You know what? I don't think of us as friends so much as colleagues. See, this is what I mean. This is Acquaintances. Why la- this is why last week I coined the nickname All Business, which is spreading like wildfire throughout <laughs> yeah. the internet. As we speak. Well, I, I'll take your word for it. I don't know. You know, hey, I'm ready to do it. I show up here, rock star in hand, ready to get some, some B vitamins and some, some taurine up in me and roll through this shit. You know, you are not kidding. You do actually have a rock star, which generally Bam. speaking, when you show up to my house to record this podcast with a rock star in your hand and unshaven as you are today, mm-hmm. which by the way, I don't know if that's quite all business. It depends what the business is. It's a clue to me that maybe you went out last night. I did not. Maybe you hit up the clubs. I did not go out. Can ma- I? Made it rain, stayed out till the wee hours. Can I drink a rock star without having to be hungover? Can't I just enjoy a delicious rock star energy beverage? No, because it says on the bright yellow can on the side, it says energy plus recovery. And you know goddamn good and well that they don't mean anything other than the fact that you're fucking hung over by recovery. Like people aren't athletes are not chugging a rock star after they get done with their workout because of recovery. No, didn't you see that one time when Mola Wall uh, brought the rock star into the strike force cage? It was frowned upon by the commission, I believe, uh, especially when he was pouring it on his head, which I think he probably later realized was a bad idea too. But uh, you know, this could be a, an after sports beverage. You don't know. Maybe in like Japan or something. So to recap, you show up at my house, unshaven, (laughs) energy drink in hand, and then you're going to sit there and compare yourself (laughs) to Muhammad Lawal. Yeah. Well, that's why we call him all business, ladies and gentlemen. All business, Ben Folks, joining us once again this week. What do you want to hear? Do you want to hear that I had a couple drinks last night? Is that what you want to hear? Only if it's true. Well, okay, I had a couple drinks, but I didn't didn't go out and get crazy. I can enjoy a rock star just like a, a normal adult. Go to the gas station, get a rock star. People do that every day. Every single day, Chad done this. I guess. It seems like sort You're of You're sitting a- up here in your house with your with your beanie on, like you can't afford to pay the heating bill or something. And you just gotta layer up in your own damn home. Seems like I touched a nerve here. <laughs> let's without just, meaning to. Let's let's move on with the show. All right. A couple of administrative uh, issues that deserve our attention before we get started. First of all, I guess if everything goes according to plan, this will be the first CME episode put out with our new logo, which Uh-oh. was designed by a new friend of the podcast, Richard Macias of Ingenious 80 Graphic Design. He's a podcast listener. He contacted us a few weeks ago and frankly has been incredibly gracious with both his time and his talents in coming up uh, with our new logo, which hopefully will be part of an overall facelift to the podcast, I guess you could say, that we will be endeavoring to trundle our way through this this year. Essentially, we're going to try to make everything about the podcast better. Yeah. In, in Except for our performances. No, our performances will mediocre. continue to be lousy. Uh, but uh, to the point, I implore you to check out Richard Macias' work. Uh, if you have a company or you run a website or you're in a band or, hell, I don't know, maybe you have a podcast, uh, go to his website, ingenious80.com. And uh, check out his work. Uh, He's got a lot of cool stuff on there. He's a very talented graphic design guy. So we thank him very much for for his work on this. And any of you who find yourselves in need of of graphic design work, hit him up at Ingenious80. We got it. Dot com. You want to say the website one more time? Ingenious80. Boom. Dot com. Also, as uh, most of the listeners know... One of the side effects of having my computer unexpectedly crap out on us a few weeks ago is that we have had to resort to secondary music choices throughout the podcast uh, between rounds, which has become 
a topic of conversation <laughs> on the internet by our listeners. Hopefully in the in the next week or so we will back be back to full strength in terms of software and file accessibility. But this week we put up a poll on the podcast a website, comaineventpodcast.com to uh, to decide if we should go back to the old round music between rounds that we've been using or continue to switch it up every week. And in a razor thin vote with 51.02% of the vote, those in favor of continuing to switch up the music between rounds carried the day. I really like how your new music, I think uh, my wife put it best when she described it as something that sounds like it belongs on the hidden level of a hidden level of Streets of Rage. Which the old, I don't old video know what game. that is, but I'm taking that as a compliment. I think it was intended somewhat complimentish. Like like your music all sounds like it could be on Contra or something. Oh, yeah, cool. See, I'm into that. I know what Contra is yeah. slash was. Uh, so this week we're going to do something kind of fun. And that is that we, we are going to have a listener. Our, our, our music between rounds this week is listener generated. And it comes to us from our guy Vic from the Titan Music Group. Trident Music Group. Uh, He submitted some tracks this week, and we're going to be using those between rounds. And I think that our listeners will be delighted to hear what it sounds like when a guy who actually knows what he's doing makes the music. And I'm sure it will be considered far and wide a great improvement over the amateur efforts that I have been providing thus far. Uh, If you like what you hear, you can check out the Trident Music Group on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Trident Music Group. See, this is all it takes for you to get a shout out on the podcast is... Do something for free for us. <laughs> and, and, and to and that chat, end... we'll say the name of your website 16 times. We've, we've discussed in the future, in the next few weeks, having a music contest. Maybe music slash poetry. Yeah. So everybody out there who is A, a poet, or B, is in a band or is a beat maker, producer of sorts... Can drop some sick beats. Keep that on the back burner, because yeah. I think that's coming your way soon. Anyway, soundcloud.com slash Trident Music Group. See? That's how it works. Anyway, as usual, the CME uh, podcast comes to you in three rounds this week. In round number one, what the fuck? If anything, I'm like the fucking superhero coming in with the anti-bullshit. In round number two... (laughs) That's all you're going to say for round one? In round number two, with Nick Diaz saying rad shit like that, it's no wonder that his fight with George St. Pierre is gobbling up all the headlines this week. But there are two other welterweight fights on the UFC 158 card that could be just as instructive in terms of plotting the future in the 170-pound division. And in round number three, first Mark Hunt was born down, then he wasn't, now he is again. And you know this. (laughs) All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do, about this time, it's listener mail. Listener mail. The first bit of listener mail comes to us this week from Philip Hanna, who writes, I'm wondering about the validity of Chris Weidman as an opponent for Anderson Silva. He won a couple of fights against nobodies, won a close decision against Damian Maya while Maya was still trying to punch people bigger than him with his left hand and knocked out a Filipino wrestler machine or something. I'm just I'm reading this as written. What are we doing? I'm reading this as written. All of a sudden, he's the biggest threat to Silva ever. Hmm, yeah. Silva, who made Maya look like a retard and decimated pretty much everyone who ever beat anyone at 185. Am I the only one who thinks it's as lopsided as Jones versus Sonnen? Just saying, come on. And before anyone mentions the Sonnen thing, he was probably injured, he still won, and he wanted to submit him, dot, dot, dot. Well, I think what we have here is... An Anderson Silva apologist, yes, for one. You took the words right out of my mouth, sir. <laughs> uh, the the extent that the, the question goes on to justify any possible misstep out, uh, Anderson Silva has made clues us into that. But I hear a lot of people saying this. Yeah, we got a couple of emails about Chris uh, Weidman of, of this same nature this week. Two things which I don't understand, but I'm two points one, I want to make. Yeah. First of all, it's really easy to denigrate a guy's accomplishments, and MMA fans love to do that. It's, oh, he's beat a couple of nobodies, and what do you do? Knock out some Filipino wrestler, which I don't machine? know. I don't know Filipino what's, wrestler machine. I don't know what's up with that. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, he 
he straight up embarrassed Mark Munoz. Yes, he did. Uh, who is a badass middleweight. I mean, just didn't just knock him out, but first just out-wrestled the hell out of him, and then knocked him out with that slick little elbow and, and put him out. I mean, that was an impressive win right there. Yeah, he, you know, he won a decision in a kind of lackluster fight against Demian Maia, which I believe he took on short notice. Um, but mainly, I would say... His accomplishments in the time that he's been around are more impressive than that questioner makes it sound. Also, that Uriah Hall dude everybody's flipping out on this season of Tough, he beat him. Uh, so, Well, there, there you yeah, go. That uh, puts a bow on it right there. You know, in, in nine fights, for a guy who's having just nine fights, he does have some pretty impressive wins. But more importantly, what else do you want to do? What else do you want to do with Anderson Silva right now? He's beat everybody else at 185 who has any kind of momentum going. So it's either just have him sit around until you can make some dream super fight thing with uh, uh, John Jones or George St. Pierre, which both of which seem like not terribly close to happening, or you make this fight. This is the only logical fight I see right now at middleweight. Yeah, and I think that I'm going to make at least some people, probably Philip Hanna's heads explode when I say this, but my suspicion is that Chris Weidman wins this fight. And there are obviously a litany of reasons and things that could prevent that from happening. But I mean, you were just saying, if you look at the 185 pound division right now and you are looking for a guy who could potentially beat Anderson Silva, I think it's Chris Weidman. And I don't see a lot of other potential contenders in there, especially when you consider over the last couple of years, Anderson Silva's body of work, which is, in my opinion, not particularly uh I, I was going to say impressive, but it actually is impressive. But I mean, like, you know, he yeah, beat Chael Sonnen. pound for pound fighter in the world. So it's he's, he's pretty impressive. He's the number two. He's an impressive He's guy. the number two. He's the greatest MMA fighter of all time. No okay. question. There's no way on God's green earth that he's the number one pound for pound fighter in the world right now. Uh, but, you know, in the last few years, he beat Chael Sonnen twice in one fight where he almost lost. Uh, he beat a retired guy. See, I'm doing I'm, I'm yeah. doing what Philip Hanna just did. You can do it to anybody. You can do it to anybody in the sport. He beat a retired guy, and he kicked Vitor Belfort in the face. That's what he's done. <laughs> big deal. Yeah, big deal. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, I think one of the reasons that this fight is interesting to a lot of people is stylistically, if you look at the kind of fighter we've seen that uh, you need to be to at least give Anderson Silva a hard time, uh, is one, his takedown defense is probably the weakest part of his game. So... Having a, a dude who's a good wrestler and go in there and put him on his back, uh, that helps. And if that guy also has knockout power, you know, Chris Weidman has both those things. Yeah, and he can finish you with a submission, too. That's, I mean, skill-wise, I think he's kind of a bad matchup for Anderson Silva. Now, psychologically, is a dude with as few fights as Chris Weidman has going to come in and be layoff. kind of swallowed by the moment? That could be the one thing that, that, that catches up to him. We're going to have to see how it goes, but... Uh, the second piece of listener mail this week comes from Chris Manning, who writes to us, Sports Illustrated columnist Richard Deitch recently wrote that UFC fighters are the fifth least powerful people in all of sports. Do you guys think that Deitch is correct in saying that UFC fighters are that low on the totem pole? You know, I, I found this really interesting. I, I missed this. I saw the Sports Illustrated list of the most powerful people in, in sports. Dana White was on that list right around the same place as Barack Obama, who was on the list. I'm not sure why. Uh, and, I mean, come on, how are you going to put... They, they equate to equals, right? <laughs> how are you going to put Barack Obama on a list of the most powerful people in sports and leave Vladimir Putin off entirely? Yeah. That's because bullshit. just physically speaking, yeah. Vladimir Putin would probably just kick seen him, everyone's ass. Have you seen a picture of him list. riding a horse across a river with his shirt off or some shit? Come on. <laughs> that's, a, that's a powerful man in sports right there. But the, the one about UFC fighters listed them, you know, along with NCAA investigators and uh, the Houston Astros manager. Uh, but here's what it says about UFC fighters. What do professional football, basketball, baseball, and hockey players have that MMA athletes lack? A professional union. Sure, the top UFC fighters earn millions of dollars, but most fighters have no control over who they fight, when they fight, and what they will earn. As for long-term compensation and health care, it falls on the fighter or, or his or her management. Uh, so those are his reasons for listing UFC fighters and as clearly, least powerful. clearly this list is composed in response to the most powerful people in sports list, which included Dana White, which I'm sure is what put Richard Deitch onto the idea of including UFC fighters on the list right. of least most powerful people, which is a little bit gimmicky, but nonetheless, maybe true. You know, when you consider the leverage of the, that the average UFC fighter has and the, the power 
uh, once he's under a UFC contract with the leverage and power of somebody in the NFL or Major League Baseball or something. It's true. They do look like they're getting a way worse deal than the people, athletes in those other major sports. Yeah, and the sad truth is probably that it's not like a fighter's union is right around the corner or even really maybe potentially viable in the sport for a lot of different reasons. So I would posture that if you think MMA fighters deserve to be on this list now, they're probably going to remain on this list for the foreseeable future because I just don't see that fighter's union getting off the ground anytime soon. Yeah, sadly, no. The last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from famous blues man Robert Johnson. Huh. Who writes I thought into, he was I, dead. Yeah, you would think he was deceased, wouldn't you? Robert Johnson writes to us, A fighter has recently been experiencing some troubles with the Florida and California State Athletic Commissions, not because of PEDs or pot, but because there's concern that she isn't woman enough to fight other women. Why? Because she was born a man. After years of hormone replacement and likely difficult surgery, Fallon Fox has lived as a woman for over four years. Critics insist that she still maintains the benefits of a lifetime parenthetically up to said surgery as a man, greater bone density, the male growth spurt at puberty, etc. Proponents insist that Fallon is absolutely a woman and she likely has no competitive advantage. Should, should she be allowed to fight women? If not, does that mean she can fight men? Please explain. That's a good, good point there at the end that, that I haven't heard uh, really explored in this whole uh, Fallon Fox issue is if for the people who say, no, she cannot fight women, it's unfair, they want her fighting men? Is that what they would rather see? Yeah, good. It's a good. It's a good question. You know, the thing to me is, for one thing, it's a, it puts us in this strange position of saying what makes a woman and what makes a man. Yeah. You know, uh, if we're saying ah, it's these testosterone levels, like these hormone levels, or you know, because she's had the gender reassignment surgery, she's been on hormone treatment. So, if, are you just saying like, hey, if you're born and classified this one way as soon as you're born, then that's it? Screw you, you can't, you, you get, you, years later, no matter what you do, that's what sticks with you. I don't know. I, I feel like that's a little uh, old-fashioned, kind of, in, in a lot of ways. I also feel like uh, I understand the need to make sure that she's not getting a competitive advantage. Um, but if the Olympics would allow her to compete as a woman, if the, the pro tennis tour and the pro golf tour would allow her to compete as a woman, uh, then it does kind of seem like especially with the Olympics, like they're, they're following some kind of scientific guideline there. You know, if, the, if you can compete in the Olympics, why couldn't you compete as a professional mixed martial artist? Yeah, and I think that you just brought up the best point, and that's that Fallon Fox meets the standards of, uh, you know, a lot of other sports, particularly the Olympics, which in, in all ways are generally considered more stringent than what we're dealing with than when the, 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 do, the old men who get together once a month to have lunch with the Florida <laughs> State Athletic Commission or the California State Athletic Commission uh, have come up with. And obviously this is a thing that I don't have any background in. I, I, I am not a doctor. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, no, I know that is going to shock everyone. To me, though, like, if you can prove that that hormonally and, and physically uh, she's going to be uh, comparable to the other women that she's fighting, then I don't really think it's that big of a deal. I do think like if if it's a situation where she's going to be using testosterone replacement therapy all of the time, uh, then maybe it's a situation where you need to, to, to get in and check the levels a little bit more well, often than you would for a person who's not doing that. And see, this is the, the point. If you want to fault uh, Fallon Fox and her team for something – this is the disclosure issue, I think, is the one to focus on. Because uh, while you can understand her maybe not wanting to take that public um, to tell everybody that, that she was transgender, that she wanted to just be treated as another female fighter, um, that's fair in your dealings with media and fans. You don't really get to decide what aspect of your medical history you keep secret from the athletic commission. You, yeah. you got to give them the chance to look at all this stuff, and they're going to require more paperwork from you in that situation, which I think is only fair just to make sure that you're not getting uh, an advantage. I mean, it's fine to say, hey, I meet the requirements of the Olympics. you got to prove it. Uh, in order to, to prove it, you've got to give them the information and give them it, the Athletic Commission the information in enough time for them to make the distinction. And they didn't do that um, because, at least according to uh, the Loretta Hunt Sports Illustrated article on it, she was worried that if she told them uh, that they would want too much time to go over it and she would miss the opportunity to compete in this tournament. Which, to me, that's a selfish motive on your app. <laughs> You're saying, 
we didn't ask permission because we were afraid that it might take too long for you to say yes or no. It doesn't work that way. You got to be able, you got to tell them up front. And I think it's a fair point that a lot of the female fighters I talked to brought up that, you know, as a matter of just a professional courtesy, you should tell your opponent. Let your opponent decide if they if they want to go ahead with that. Because one of her opponents said, "Hey, if I'd have known this beforehand, I probably would not have fought her. I probably would not have taken that fight." So I I mean now the you know the the horse is out of the barn on this one. So it's kind of a moot point, but uh, I do think that uh, full disclosure all the way around would have been the way to go. My question for you is, how pissed are you that Loretta Hunt got to this story before you did? Because this one, oh, here it's we go. right in your wheelhouse. Like this one smacks of a Sunday afternoon Ben Folk's lifestyle piece where I can uh, light, light my pipe, my tobacco pipe, mm-hmm. uh, kick my feet up on the desk and really get into a long read there yeah. on the uh, MMAJunkie.com. Pull, pull your beanie down low over your eyes even though you're in your own home. Uh, first of all, uh, the first person on this was my MMA Junkie colleague Stephen Morocco. Stephen Morocco was on this, this this piece. So you're mad at Morocco for not? No, hey, I think I given you the slow pitch softball and being like, this is one you could knock out of the park, folks. With Morocco, your artistic style, and he was your, all over. Put it your here. jazz music on and just jazz music. pontificate on this for like five thousand words. <laughs> he was on this, uh, and in the Outsports.com article, it references that you know she was kind of still trying to keep this secret until a reporter called oh. uh, after her most recent fight and started asking questions that led her to to conclude that the secret was out, that this guy knew. That guy was Stephen Morocco. What a dick. <laughs> That's that, chasing, chasing it down. <laughs> good good work by Stephen. Didn't, didn't really get the... The, the accolades on that one, because then Fallon Fox and her people took it, took it over to Loretta Hunt, but uh, my boy Morocco was all over this one. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, or, or something to air for the podcast, you can do that in future weeks by getting a hold of us by going to the website, comaineventpodcast.com, and clicking the link at the top of the page that says, email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. One of the things that is great about covering mixed martial arts is that happenings like the George St. Pierre, Nick Diaz, UFC 158 pre-fight conference call are still allowed to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Because this is a thing that would never, ever be allowed to happen in almost any other non-fight related sport. The NFL would never let Drew Brees go on a motherfucker-laced tirade on one of its company-sponsored conference calls in the direction of, say, Tom Brady. It just wouldn't happen. Which is a shame, because I think it would be awesome if Drew Brees went all Nick Diaz on it, and when somebody asked Tom Brady if he felt like he was pampered, shouted out, I hope so, motherfucker! (laughs) And Drew Brees is that kind of dude, too. Uh, I guess my opening question for you, which is something that you brought up this week to me when we were chatting on the internets, uh, is how come Nick Diaz always says that he, or that we're led to believe, I guess, that Nick Diaz hates to do media when when the dude shows up to do it, he's like the best fucking guy in the sport, <laughs> bar none, at doing media. Yeah, so he's awesome. Is Nick Diaz the best MMA fighter when it comes to to actually doing media? Yeah. Well, like, I mean, the thing is, uh, you can't really count on Nick Diaz necessarily to give you a whole bunch of, like, usable quotes that you immediately know what to do with. Like, the weirdness of Nick Diaz has to be in any story that you write about Nick Diaz. You know, George St. Pierre is going to, like, give you these kind of cookie-cutter quotes, and, you know, the story is going to take shape in front of your eyes while you're talking to him. With Nick Diaz... He's going to say something, and then he's going to say something right after that directly contradicts what he just said. He's going to tell you that he doesn't have time to do anything because he's too busy fighting your fights, even though he's been suspended for the past year. You know, he's going to do all this stuff that 
makes it hard to just lay out what he's saying without any commentary on it. Um, but goddamn, is it fun? Yeah, it's weird because I've, and I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I feel like the conception of Nick Diaz is this, is as this like quiet, brooding dude who doesn't want to talk to you under any circumstances. But when you get him in a public forum like this at, uh, either like a, a post fight press conference or a conference call. It's like you literally cannot shut the guy up. No. He just talks and talks and talks, and it's fascinating. Yeah. It's like it's like a car crash that you can't look away from. I asked him a question on that that media call, and I can't even remember exactly what the question was. Something about that that clip that the UFC is running of George St Pierre, you know, supposedly telling Dana White that Nick Diaz is the most disrespectful person he'd ever met in his life, and then he gives like this this rambling answer where I, you're, you're never sure where it ends. Like, do I say something else now? Do yeah. I, do I let him keep talking? Cause he will just kind of keep talking about whatever subject comes into his mind. It's the same thing. I remember interviewing him once, one of the pre fight press conferences and strike force. And, you know, we stepped off to the side and did a little interview afterwards. And then when I stopped the recorder and he was like, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, well, I'm going to write a story on it. And he was like, no, I don't. I didn't like that. I didn't like that interview. Don't use that. And I and I kind of looked over at that uh, the Strike Force PR guy, and he just kind of like raised his eyebrows at me, like I don't know, man. <laughs> and I was like, really? Well, I thought that's why we were talking, like so I could use this interview and do a story. And he was like, No, I didn't like it, man. Let's do it again. We'll do it again right now. And so we did it again. Wow. Right then. And, and Nick did- Diaz is not the kind of dude that you would want to engage with in a conversation about who legally owns that thing that <laughs> yeah. you just said. No, it was like, okay, I guess we're doing it again. And then we did it again, and it was almost the exact same interview. He gave like almost the exact same answers to the same questions. Well, but he liked that one better? He liked Take I, Two better? I guess. He consented I guess he to did. let you use it? I, I, he consented to let me use it. I went ahead and used it. But the whole thing was just bizarre. And apparently... Not the first time he's done that to anybody. I mean, that once I started, I told somebody about that afterwards, and they're like, "Yeah, no, he did the same thing to me." And uh, you know, I saw it being bandied about on the internet afterward about who is better at doing media, Nick Diaz or Chael Sonnen. And I saw a lot of people saying Sonnen, but for me, the thing that's most compelling about Nick Diaz is that he's not acting. No, like he is not. And you get the impression, like maybe he 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 is cognizant of the fact that he's doing this to sell to sell a fight, but also maybe he's not. Like when Chael Sonnen does it, and Chael Sonnen is also you know tremendous at doing this kind of thing. But when he does it, when he does this in front of the media, he's clearly doing it in a calculated way. He's you know a lot of times to the point where he is playing a character almost, you know, totally playing a character where he is. He's essentially like boosting some lines from superstar Billy Graham and doing uh, this professional wrestling thing. Diaz is not doing that. Diaz is being Diaz. And that to me is far more compelling and interesting than seeing a guy. Cause I feel like the, the, uh, you know, the, the word is out kind of like about how you sell a fight in MMA now. And, Honestly, it's, it's sometimes it's annoying when dudes like try to build up this beef or like be really over the top of the media because they know that they're trying to sell the fight. With Diaz, you never get the impression that that's what he's trying to do. You only get the impression that he opens his mouth and these are the things in his mind and these words come out. And I yeah. find that to be fascinating. It is. And it's like he seems to genuinely mean every single word he says, even the stuff that contradicts each other. He means it all somehow. Yeah. Like totally, totally genuine, like no real appearance of any like pretense or or calculation. Uh, For instance, when he's talking about how George St. Pierre has people living his life for him and creating him a Twitter and telling him when to go to, to video shoots. Again, one of the things I love about Nick Diaz's shtick is his continuing insistence that nobody ever tells him when his media responsibilities are, and that's why he misses them. As if, like, no one from the UFC at this point even is like, well, I don't know, we won't, we won't tell Nick that there's a conference call coming up. No, he'll, I'm sure he'll figure it out. Like, no, I'm, I'm sure Nick Diaz is at the top of the list of guys who are getting a bunch of calls and texts and emails telling him when media stuff is. But when he's complaining about George St. Pierre, you know, having all these people to do all this stuff for him, and he doesn't. Here's the quote. Quote, my life's a mess. I'm not afraid to admit it. I work hard regardless through this shit. 
but I don't have people toweling me off and handing me water bottles left and right and getting my training paid for me. I've got to do all that shit on my own and every day I know it. And that's why I know I have to go that much harder and concentrate and do that much more because I don't have people taking care of my money or financial tax obligations or what have you. I'm too busy fighting all your fights. I'm too busy entertaining all the fans. I don't see anybody else bringing shit to the table. Yeah, one of my Boom. Favorite, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, one of my favorite things about that quote is that you can tell like how pissed Nick Diaz is that he obviously watched a video of George St. Pierre and saw somebody hand him a water bottle. <laughs> and it's awesome that in Nick Diaz's mind, that is a symbol for how, for what a pampered and spoiled athlete George St. Pierre is that somebody handed him a water bottle. And you just know George has got people taking care of his financial tax obligations or what have or you. what have you. Here's one of my favorite quotes uh, from Nick Diaz, some choice cuts from this uh, conference call. If I had that much money, I'd be fucking pampering myself the fuck up. I'd be having motherfuckers pampering my shit left and fucking right. There'd be motherfuckers every hour on the hour showing up to pamper me out, period. (laughs) You know, the best part about the conference call I felt was, uh, you know... Nick's going off doing all his stuff, talking about how he doesn't know what the fuck is going on with George St. Pierre's dark side, whatever bullshit he's trying to dredge up. And, you know, George doesn't get too many words in there, but then there's that moment where he bursts in and says, Listen to me, uneducated fool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. I mean, that's when you're like, yeah, okay. No, man, we would be, uh, you know, we would be doing a disservice to George St. Pierre, I think, to continue along the track where we, we talk about how this conference call was only about Nick Diaz because uh, it's like fucking chocolate and peanut butter getting these two <laughs> together. Like Nick D watching George St. Pierre's steady French Canadian patience, like slowly unravel when he's confronted by the just complete insanity of planet Diaz makes this thing what it is. Like, yeah. if, if this was Diaz and somebody else, it would it'd still be epic, but it wouldn't be as awesome because uh, it's like they're polar op. It's like they're the welterweight division's odd couple, honestly. It's like Fox is dropping the ball, not producing a sitcom where George St. Pierre and Nick Diaz own a pizza joint together and like live in an apartment upstairs. It's that good. You know, if, the, if Spike TV was still involved with the UFC, George and Nick would be on some kind of rescue show, one of those yes. business they rescue shows. They would be in shows. an RV, driving yeah. around, trying to save pit bulls. Yeah. Uh, Dry cleaner rescue or something when they come to your town. And, you know, but the, the thing about it, too, is that, like you were saying, this perfect playing off of each other, like you, you can't help but put yourself in, in George St. Pierre's position, especially when Nick Diaz is complaining about his money and his financial tax obligations or what have you. Uh, And at one point, George seemed like he was actually trying to help him, like trying to explain to him the concept of passive income and how the importance of creating a personal brand, you know, like he's actually like he's one step away from sitting down and trying to help Nick Diaz create a 401k. And all Nick can do is interrupt him and, burst in and say that sounds real nice George Uh, you know maybe if I got a haircut and put on some tight shorts or whatever had people buttering me up that shit would work for me but I doubt it and it's like you could see how frustrating that must be to George St. Pierre be like this dude is complaining about how his money isn't right all this this stuff I try to give him some helpful friendly free advice and his first reaction is be like well that shit doesn't fucking work for me i'm I'm too busy fighting your fights even though i've been suspended for last year but you know and you could see how to george such a seems like such an analytical rational guy it's got to be even more maddening here's another choice cut from nick diaz i think it's disrespectful that people try to act like i'm not important you know who i am everybody knows who i am george knows who i am and I know that if I were in, in his position, I would especially know who I am. Especially. Number one, first and foremost. <laughs> I would especially know who I am, too. Wait, what? Yeah, no, I don't know. Uh, and uh, as far as the fight is concerned, this... Oh, yeah. Oh, barrage, that's right. Yeah, I know, I know, right? This barrage of, like, of personal insults and, and, and beefing, beef for the ages between GSP and, and Diaz... 
I mean, it it really has effectively obscured the idea that there aren't very many analysts, at least, that think that Diaz's style is going to pose much of a threat to GSP. And we actually got kind of an interesting uh, question asked to the podcast this week. Uh, I can't remember who sent it in, but somebody was like, hey, if you were Nick Diaz's coach, which thank God we are not, <laughs> uh, what would be the best game plan for him using his skills to beat George St. Pierre? And I, had, I stared at it for a long time, and I was like, God damn, that's a good question, because I really have no idea. I mean, I think, obviously, the obvious answer is you have to stop the takedown and try to use uh, your unbelievably prodigious punching numbers uh, to try to fluster George St. Pierre, to get in his face. Uh, you would kind of just do the Diaz, I guess. You yeah. want to get in GSP's face, pepper him with those uh, pitter-pat punches, which don't appear to hurt until they do. Uh, and just try to sort of throw him off his game because the one thing that we know about George St. Pierre, even though he sort of weathered a storm uh, against Carlos Condit in his last fight, like he's very much a guy who wants to stay within his comfort zone. So I would think that if you're Diaz, the plan would be push him outside of that and see how he reacts. Yeah, you know, I was talking to uh, Gilbert Melendez uh, last week. We're little plug here. We're doing a UFC 158 pullout section in USA Today this week. Uh, yours truly has a, uh, a feature story on Nick Diaz uh, for that, and I talked to a bunch of people. You know, Caesar Gracie, Big Shields, to Nick Diaz himself. Well, through the conference call. Oh, he was only available during the conference call. And that's call. the thing. That's how you know that the UFC has kind of uh, they know what they're dealing with when it comes to Nick Diaz and media stuff now, um, because when looking at availability with who to talk to, I mean, if you wanted to get on the phone with GSP, the UFC would, would help you make that happen. Try to get on the phone with Nick Diaz. They're like, oh, he's going to be on the conference call. Maybe. Uh, so, yeah, had, had to work with what we had there. But I talked to Gil Melendez about it, and I asked him you know, how he saw that fight going. And he said, hey, Nick is probably going to walk into some takedowns. He just keeps coming forward at you as part of his style. So he, he probably is going to get taken down some. Uh, but Gil Melendez said that he's a lot stronger than people think down there and clever off his back, I think, is the, the – the point he made. Yeah, no, I should have um, said that. Diaz certainly has the, the, the ability to submit George St. Pierre off his back. I just don't know if I see it happening. But. The thing is, and it seemed like Gilbert Melendez's take anyway, and I think this is right, is that uh, Nick Diaz, if he's going to win this, he's going to win it in the later rounds. You know, that he says, you know, we, you know what George is going to do. He's going to try and win rounds one at a time, taking you down, elbowing you in the face, that kind of stuff. Uh, he's not going to sacrifice top position to try and go for a submission or anything. Uh, so, uh, he said, I think, I think what he said was, I think Nick can, can make it a fight and I think he can talk him into it. And I said, do you, do you mean literally talk him into it? He said, yeah, yeah, that's what Nick will do to you. He'll, he'll be talking to you the entire time, maybe third or fourth or fifth round. That's when, uh, I think the, the best opportunity for Nick Diaz is stun GSP on the feet. You know, you're going to have to go through some takedowns and, and get beat up on the, on your back a little bit, but one of those points, if you can stun him on the feet and get him to kind of, out of panic or desperation, get sloppy in a takedown attempt, that's where Nick Diaz is great at locking up submissions, is from that transition from the feet to the ground, and he can submit you off his back that way. I would say that's Nick Diaz's best hope here. And I don't think it's a particularly great hope. Check this out, motherfucker. <laughs> I pulled up to a stoplight the other day, and some fucking 40-year-old lady, some soccer mom, sticks her head out the window and says, I hope GSP beats your ass. We're in fucking Lodi, bitch. I'm like, are you serious? I'm living in a fucking small town of people full of people who hate me over here. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, I don't know if you noticed this, but I was researching this card, UFC 158, on the old Wikipedia, and I realized... Did you type it into the Google? Huh, I typed it into the Google, and I realized, what do you know? There are other welterweights on this card, huh. other than just George St. Pierre now, and Nick are you Diaz. sure about that? Because I've heard that Wikipedia is not a reliable source in terms of academic citation, or... It, it is. I think of it as the most trusted source on the internet. 
That and WebMD. Yes, whenever you've got an ailment. Yeah, by the way, it turns out I have cancer of the everything. Wow, okay. Uh, So that's unfortunate. But I even then went back after I saw this on Wikipedia and listened to my recording of the conference call, and it seemed like accidentally I heard Johnny Hendrix's voice sneak in there once or twice. Uh, And... uh, but then just, just a little bit, like just like a ghost. Here and there, yeah. Yeah, kind of in the background. By the way, how much of a waste of your time have you got to feel it was if you were one of those other welterweights on that conference call uh, to have to sit through that when it was just the fucking Nick Diaz show with occasional George St. Pierre guest appearances? You know, Jake Ellenberger, Carlos Condit, Johnny Hendricks, uh, Marquardt, Marquardt all just kind of sitting around going... Well, I'm glad I carved out an hour of my day and, and took off a training for this. Yeah, I, and but I mean, they must have known that that was going to be the case going in. But for a dude like Johnny Hendricks, you have to assume that that just sort of added to the frustration that he must already be feeling. Since if you look at Johnny Hendricks's record, God damn it, if it doesn't seem like he should already be fighting George St. Pierre oh, yeah. this weekend at UFC 158, because I believe... He's 9-1 and one in the UFC and 11-1 and one if you count the two wins that he had in the WEC before he came over to the UFC. I think he's got something like five wins in a row and like nine of his 15 total career fights have ended in stoppages. So when you consider how fucking overqualified Johnny Hendricks is to be the number one contender in any division in the UFC, it's got to seem like just the ultimate fucking screw job to him that just because the UFC can't, thinks that it can sell a few more pay-per-views, well, maybe a few hundred thousand more pay-per-views, yeah. uh, by installing Nick Diaz, who I think we all have a tendency to forget, is coming off a loss yeah. in this title fight. And no, don't do the thing, people at home. You're like, oh, but I thought he deserved to win that decision. No, it's not how this shit works. It goes down as a loss. Yeah, God plus, damn it. Plus, he didn't deserve to win that decision. But anyway, uh, if you're Johnny Hendricks, man, you've already got to think that this is the biggest Scroogey of all time. Yeah. And now you're fighting Carlos Condit, who is also certainly a top five welterweight, regardless of which ridiculous rankings you, you choose to look at. And you think, well, now what do I got to do, beat this guy? Like, after I beat this guy, am I going to get a title shot? Or is George St. Pierre just going to fucking depart for the 185-pound division? Or is, you know, somebody else going to get the shot just because they're more they're more marketable? And for Hendricks, that's got to be super frustrating. On top of everything else, because I really believe that he, if anybody is, might be the worst matchup for George St. Pierre in the welterweight division, just considering that he is... A really good wrestler who also has one-punch knockout power in his hands. So I don't even know what you're supposed to think if you're Johnny Hendricks at this point. Well, I like how it seems pretty obvious to all of us that at least part of the UFC's motivation in putting so many top welterweights on the same card was that, well, look, there's a pretty good chance that Nick Diaz is going to fuck this up somehow. So we got to have people already training for that date in mind. You know, I don't know if they explicitly told any of these guys, hey, be ready in case that call comes to switch it up. Um, But even if they didn't, these dudes are smart enough to look at the situation and figure out that there was maybe maybe a pretty good chance that one reason or another, Nick Diaz wouldn't make it to Saturday night and somebody else would have to fill in there against George St. Pierre. They're probably all a little bummed that it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, hey, I, anything could still happen. That's We've true. We've still got several days before this thing goes live. <laughs> but i got to feel like uh, when that conference call started last week and the first thing I said was, you know, we've got five of the six welterweights on the card, and Dana White said, you know, Big shocker, we're still looking for Nick Diaz. And right after he said that, then Nick Diaz was like, hello? What the fuck? What? You know, like... And I got to think in that that brief little window of time between the point when Dana White said they're still looking for Nick Diaz and when Nick Diaz chimed in, the the spirits of Johnny Hendricks and Jake Ellenberg and those guys must have briefly lifted like, here we go. This could be it. This could be it. I could be getting my, my call here pretty soon. And then, oh, no. Nick Diaz not only made it, but then totally went ape shit on the conference call to the point that nobody pays attention to any of the rest of you guys. Yeah, and really even beyond that, which I and I'm sure you're right, there's a definite this smacks of an insurance policy. Yeah. There was definitely some consideration given to the fact that Nick Diaz might not fulfill all of his pre fight obligations. But really, 
like this is pretty good matchmaking by the UFC, even though I know that, you know, they had an injury that they kind of had to scramble things around. But still, almost any way this goes, they're going to have some direction for the welterweight division after this pay-per-view. Because if let's assuming St. Pierre beats Diaz, if Johnny Hendricks beats Carlos Condit, then you've got an obvious number one contender at 170. If Carlos Condit should upset Johnny Hendricks, then, you know, maybe you could check down for, for to take the winner of Jake Ellenberger or Nate Marquardt, because I think either of those guys, you could potentially build a storyline around, I don't even know. though Marquardt comes in off a loss. See, I that's, that's the thing. weakest place. Uh, there is a, a way, like, if, if Condit wins and Marquardt wins, that kind of and, and St. Pierre defends the title, that kind of fucks with your plans. It does a little bit, but even if that happens, you've still got a dude like Damian Maya in your back pocket, and you've got uh, Rory McDonald, even though he's injured. Obviously, he and St. Pierre are teammates, so that you might run into some trouble there. But, you know, it, it, there's going to be a lot of options. And, you know, if fucking Diaz wins, then all bets are off. Yeah. Then anything could happen. Then yeah. fuck Carlos Condit. He could have a rematch with Carlos Condit. He could fight Johnny Hendricks. He could fight Jack Ellenberger. He could fight Damian Maya. Yeah. If you've read uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, <laughs> that's what the welterweight division will look like yes. if, if Nick, Nick Diaz, Diaz wins. becomes the UFC champion, the least of our worries is finding someone for him to fight at that point. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, I know we, we didn't really talk about this that much in, in round one, but... I feel like in thinking about what will happen if Nick Diaz does indeed become UFC welterweight champion, I'm I'm torn because on one hand, that would be really interesting. It'd be a really interesting situation, kind of some upheaval at the top. Nick Diaz is fascinating to, to us, of course, as we've already talked about. From the UFC side, god damn, that's a headache. If Nick Diaz is your champion, you are not there's no way you're gonna get him to do anything. Yeah, but I mean, he's still. I mean, I think that the UFC, from from where the UFC is, you have to imagine that the UFC just thinks he can sell pay per views. Like, if he becomes your welterweight champion, yeah, you're never getting any piece of media relation done with your welterweight champion as long as he has the belt. But which he will probably lose. Oh, I yeah. mean, I mean that's the thing. Like, the, the, like he's the, leaving it in the trunk of somebody's car. You know? <laughs> oh, you mean literally? Oh yeah. Loops. No, I mean, I mean, misplace. <laughs> you know that? that yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see where you're at. Like, if they gave him the belt. And if he managed to to bring it all the way back to Stockton without leaving it like at the the Panda Express in the Minneapolis airport during a layover, I would be stunned. Yeah, and you know we we just saw him lose that fight to Carlos Condit. So like the the thing that makes George St Pierre obviously as like uh, astounding as he is, is the fact is the longevity that he's had at the top of the division, like having Diaz as champ. And this is what I thought you meant when you said he was going to lose the belt. I thought you meant it in a conventional sense, <laughs> uh, having Diaz as champ would be fascinating and compelling and all that stuff, but he would probably lose the belt, you know, relatively quickly. Someone would beat him. Well, and the thing is, and this was why I think the George St. Pierre matchup seems particularly tough for Nick Diaz is as great like as a hardcore fighter as Nick Diaz is just like you know wants to stay there all night and fight you until somebody quits or, or cannot continue he doesn't do that well at fighting within the system and rules of MMA like he's, well, but those are bullshit though I don't yeah, know those, are, the those are those are totally bullshit um but again it's kind of like his thing with his financial problems he would seems like he would rather complain about what he sees as bullshit than take even a few steps on his own to, to do what he can to, to better work within the bullshit. Like, and that's one of the things that I talked about for, for my story when I talked to the guys like Jake Shields and, and Gilbert Melendez. That, and Jake Shields was saying, you know, Nick fights off of emotion really well. He's like, look at that Paul Daly fight where Paul Daly drops him and it's like Nick Diaz just gets mad and gets up and knocks him out. And that same thing, though, works against him, like in the Carlos Condit fight, where he, when he feels like the dude is running away from him, you know, enacting this strategy to win rounds, instead of taking a step back and thinking, okay, how do I counter that so that I can win the rounds, rather than just playing right into it and following him around and, and losing a decision, instead his reaction is to just get mad and start yelling at the guy and trying to bitch slap him. You know, that stuff doesn't really work that well, and, and Nick Diaz seems like he has not learned how to fight within within the MMA as it is rather than as he would like it to be under the, the Stockton rules where we just look at your face at the end of the fight and say, whoever looks like they got beat up worse loses. Or the one I like the best is if the fight would have continued indefinitely. Right. Every fight is won? to the death. Yeah. 
Uh, every time I've ever interviewed either Gilbert Melendez or Jake Shields, I always come away with the feeling like, man, how the fuck are these guys on the same team as Nick and Nate Diaz? And it must just be that they don't talk about anything else besides. Yeah, they just talk training, I'm yeah, sure. besides training. And maybe some, some vegan diet stuff. Who knows? <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, it's like going to Thanksgiving at your racist uncle's house. You know better than to start talking politics with him. Yeah, true. You, you know better than to ask him what he thinks of Obamacare. No, it's like, okay, he likes cars. All right, well, let's just let's keep the conversation to cars, man. <laughs> All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we'll move on to round number three. Uh, This is the part of the show where Ben and I, it's ah, self-explanatory. People get it. Everyone's been listening to the damn show so long. They know what it is. This week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to the dude in Bama who walked to the cage wearing a Bane mask. I mean, are you serious, dude? Bane? (laughs) I think we all know that aside from the confounding and indecipherable plot the complete ridiculousness of bane was one of the main things that made the dark knight rises kind of a disappointment and it it hurts me to say it honestly because tom hardy's one of my guys like tom hardy's incredibly realistic performance of a dumb and angry mma fighter was one of the only good things about the movie warrior yeah he was good in that so but so it it pains me to say it but Seriously, dude, Bane, Bane sucks. <laughs> Let's just put a, a full-time moratorium on dudes walking to the cage wearing Bane masks from now until eternity. You're going to get so much hate mail for this. You fucking kidding me? <laughs> My Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Brandon Vera, who declared in a, a recent interview... Uh, that, again, for about the 12th time, he is re-interested in MMA. His quote, I got my mojo back. I'm putting all the 205s and heavyweights on notice. I'm back, son, like I crave it now. For a long time, I didn't need to train or didn't need to win or need to shine. I don't know what happened, but I got it back. Brandon, we've been through all this, man. A bunch of times, in fact. How many times can you get your mojo back, then go out lose or barely win and anyway we don't see the proof out there in the cage and then you take a few months off and then declare no this time this time i got it back you fucking kidding me brandon vera are you fucking kidding me we've been through this i liked when brandon vera cut that really sad video after he got beat by uh john jones and like he oh, was in his was hotel sad. room and his like his eyes his eye was huge. huge but like the tenor of the video was like all right, John Jones, yeah. you got me this time, <laughs> yes. but next time it's going to be a different story. Yeah, as if it was just like as if John Jones had just pulled off some sly trick on yeah. him, like uh, instead Vera of breaking had been beating his face. him for four rounds, and then <laughs> Jones threw a triangle on. He's like, yeah. "All right, John, you got me this time." Good one, good one, John Jones. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, I thought it spoke to both the power and regrettable shortcomings of Twitter as used by the MMA community this past week when first we saw this great groundswell of support for Mark Hunt following the news that Alistair Overeem had been injured and the UFC uh, assumedly needed someone to step in to fight Junior Dos Santos at UFC 160. And then we heard Dana White's pronouncement that Mark Hunt had turned the fight down. And then we got Mark Hunt's denial that he had ever turned down a fight in his career. And then we got Dana White making the pronouncement that he and Mark Hunt had a, not just a great phone conversation, but great in all caps. And then Finally, the next day, we got the announcement that Mark Hunt, yes, indeed, will fight Junior Dos Santos at UFC 160 in May. So I guess to open up this round, I will say, obviously, it's fun for us in the media to see this kind of soap opera drama play out on Twitter. But why not do all this in private, man? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Yeah. And it also really makes you wonder if Mark Hunt didn't ever turn down the fight then why would Dana White get on his Twitter just to, to yell at people 
call him dummy. Call him dummy for for asking why he didn't make the fight between Mark Hunt and JTS. Why do that? Well, that's and that's the thing that I mean. There are still unanswered questions about this situation. Obviously, like what was going on during that like hour plus long time when it appeared that the UFC and Mark Hunt were at odds. Like, did he turn the fight down? Was there some kind of miscommunication? And that, at the end of the day, for me, is one of the big shortcomings of Twitter. And the UFC loves it. Obviously, they promote the shit out of it with all their guys. They want them to use it to to uh, to promote their own, quote-unquote, personal brands, but also to obviously create this giant UFC network of Twitter followers. Uh, but to me, a lot of times when it comes to actual public relations, there's just so much room for interpretation. And because your character count is so limited, you end up with these situations where it's just really, really easy to get crosswise. You know what I mean? Like you can, it's so easy to misunderstand stuff. And even now we still don't know what the shit was going on between Mark Hunt and the UFC and Dana White, except the fact that Dana White says that they had a great conversation. Not true. Seems not true true because as we know about Mark Hunt from watching his performances at post fight press conferences and interviews and stuff like that over the past few months, nobody's ever had a great conversation with Mark Hunt. No, no one has ever come away from a conversation with Mark Hunt being like, wow, that was an amazing conversation. Whoa. I just need to, I need to take a few minutes, sit down and just unpack everything that just happened there. Uh, man, no, that, that has never happened. Also, doesn't this now make you think back on when Dana White was saying, Hey, Liz Carmouche is getting that shot at Ronda Rousey because no one else wanted it. No one else would fight Ronda Rousey. All these other fighters turned it down. And then you had a couple of female fighters saying, no, we didn't. Uh, and Dana White saying, yes, you did. Doesn't this situation now make you look back on that and think that uh, maybe the, the female fighters in question were the ones telling the truth? Well, yeah, it's just weird. I have no idea what it means. Like, clearly Dana White, as much as he does for the sport and 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 as good as he is at being the UFC president, can't be in all places at the same time. He can't possibly be having all of these conversations with either fighters or fighters intermediaries, you know, their managers or whatever. So, like, is this a case of simple misunderstanding between one of Mark Hunt's people and one of Dana White's people? Or is Dana White just saying stuff a lot of the times? This one seems like just saying stuff. But, yeah, you know, because... It seems like it would be a pretty clear conversation. Do you want the fight or not? Uh, and if Mark Hunt was born down, as as I think we all know that, that he was, then uh, it seemed like it would be pretty simple. Mark, do you want this fight? Yes, I do. You know, I don't, that would probably be a little verbose for Mark Hunt, actually. Uh, <laughs> he would probably say, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like the fight, whatever, man. Uh, that's my Mark Hunt, by the way. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. Yeah. Um, I felt like your Diaz was really coming along, too, from round number one. I felt yeah. like you were... Uh... You were nailing it. Well, thanks. You know, maybe I'm having a good impression day here. All business, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, now that we are going to get this fight, I mean, it feels like one of the, it was weird the way it, it came together where, hey, maybe you should have had that great conversation before everybody gets on Twitter and starts just talking shit. Uh, but now that we actually got it, Mark Hunt versus Junior Dos Santos, I got to say, I'm pretty fucking pumped about that fight. Yeah, it's 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 a weird mix of emotions because obviously lots of people supported Mark Hunt for this. I think he's clearly the right guy to insert in this situation. You know, he's got the the longest active heavyweight win streak in the top 10 uh, of guys who have fought in the UFC. Obviously, the only guy who has a longer one is Daniel Cormier as he's undefeated, I believe at 11 and 0. So clearly he's earned it. As we talked about last week on the podcast, uh you know, one of the most interesting things about Mark Hunt, the contender at heavyweight, is that we're still not entirely sure how serious we need to take him because we still all remember the six-fight losing streak uh, from 2006 to 2010. And, you know, he's still a fairly one-dimensional and, dare I say, plodding guy in this division where uh, the conventional wisdom says in the modern UFC heavyweight landscape, you're not supposed to be able to compete at the highest level with that sort of one-dimensional attack. And yet, Mark Hunt has done it for the last couple of years. So now we've got this situation where Mark Hunt clearly deserves this fight. We've all argued for it, and then he gets it, and our first thought is, oh, God, he's probably going to get killed. You know what I mean? Uh, but at the same time, if you're Mark Hunt and you're going to fight anyone in the heavyweight top top five... Maybe Junior Dos Santos is the best guy for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I think so. Because, 
you know, you, when you think about Junior Dos Santos, it's like I'm sure Junior Dos Santos probably could take Mark Hunt down. Doesn't seem like it probably it'd be something he really thinks about too much, especially if you know you've been preparing for Overeem, you know, and then you, you switch up to Mark Hunt. You gotta think that Junior Dos Santos is gonna go in there thinking, all right, you know, I don't want to get hit by this guy, but I can outpoint him on the feet most likely. And the thing with Mark Hunt is. If your plan is going to be to punch him in the head until he stops moving, uh, that's probably not going to work. Yeah, because it's going to be a long ride. Yeah, that, you can you can hit that dude with a shovel, and he's going to still be standing there looking at you afterwards. And all he needs is one good shot to completely turn your world upside down. I mean, if Cain Velasquez uh, can knock JDS's legs into Jello, imagine what Mark Hunt could do with one stiff blow. The thing that's crazy is it's not at all inconceivable that Mark Hunt wins this fight, uh, then goes on to fight for the UFC heavyweight title. Imagine, like right now, Mark Hunt 9-7 as a professional mixed martial arts fighter. A 563 win percentage for those of you <laughs> scoring at home. If he, if he beats JDS, that makes him 10-7. and seven. Uh, And imagine if he won the heavyweight title... And was eleven and seven as a career mark UFC heavyweight champion Mark fucking Hunt. Well, do you think it'd be awesome? No, it, I would. I thought that one without saying. <laughs> uh, if he beats Junior Dos Santos, do you think that he gets a title shot? Because it still seems to me, and my initial reaction to the news that you know the first news that we got out of this situation was that the UFC was just going to wait for Alistair Overeem to get healthy, and he was going to still fight Junior Dos Santos after he heals up from what he describes as a quote-unquote slight tear of the quad, which seems, hmm. frankly, horrible. <laughs> uh, my initial reaction to that news was, wow, it's, it really feels like the UFC is trying hard to put Alistair Overeem in a position where he can really quickly earn a heavyweight title shot. Yes. Uh, so do you think if Mark Hunt beats Junior Dos Santos... He will have a five-fight win streak in the UFC heavyweight division, which is kind of amazing. Do you think he fights for the title, or do we then see Alistair Overeem, Mark Hunt, which, again, pretty awesome fight, but also eh, maybe not the greatest for Mark Hunt? I think, you know, maybe Mark Hunt's going to get Johnny Hendricks here, uh, for all we know. But if you beat Junior Dos Santos, that's, that's title shot worthy stuff right there. Yeah, I know. I agree. It just, uh, I mean, is that how the UFC is going to play? Yeah, and you know, definitely Alistair Overeem would need to do something big to put some distance between, uh, you know, the testing positive for steroids that, or for, for testosterone thing, and then coming back off of that, losing to, to Bigfoot Silva. That puts him at, a, at quite a remove from a possible title shot. So it's not as if. It's just a matter of wait until Alistair Overeem is healthy. He'd, you'd have to wait until he's healthy and then uh, wait until he's done something to, to redeem himself after that. Beating Mark Hunt might be that kind of thing, but then what would you do with the, with the heavyweight title in the meantime? Uh, because you're looking at there you know, a, a pretty significant uh, layoff if you don't do anything else with, with assuming Cain Velasquez wins the, that title defense. I mean, I think we're all operating on that assumption, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think mean, that's Mark a good Hunt point. Timing. That's fun. Yeah, that is. A, that'd be a real fun fight. Uh, timing, probably the if Mark Hunt were to beat Junior Dos Santos, timing would probably be his his best friend at that point, because you're right. They would have to do something with the heavyweight title rather than just wait for Overeem to either beat Hunt or win another fighter. You know, what have you. Uh, all right. Well, let's do just saying stuff and then we will wrap up for today's co-main event podcast. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? I'm just saying that when Nick Diaz said that if he had as much money as GSP, quote, I'd be fucking pampering myself to fuck up. I'd be having motherfuckers pampering my shit left and fucking right. There'd be motherfuckers every hour on the hour showing up to pamper me out, period. I'm just saying that if you think about what it would even look like for motherfuckers to be pampering Nick Diaz's shit left and right... I don't know exactly what that job would entail, but I imagine there'd be at least a little bit of blunt rolling and a lot of requests to go retrieve his throwing knives out of the drywall above the dartboard in his house. I'm just saying. Just saying. For me, like, pamper, to get pampered out is a totally new expression. Yeah. It's not one that I was I mean, familiar with in the past. I mean, but come on, you want motherfuckers coming over to pamper your shit left and right. Yeah, absolutely. And if I had GSP money, I would be doing that shit, period. <laughs> 
This week, I'm just saying that it really hammered home to me how bleak it is out there in the open market for guys who have recently been cut from the UFC and how even more important it seems now for them to do whatever it takes to stay employed by the UFC. I say this after Matt Riddle signed with Legacy Fighting Championship and Ulysses Gomez signed with something called Pandemonium that I've never, frankly never heard of Is before. Is this an event promoted in your backyard? <laughs> For all I know, my wife could be behind it. I don't know. <laughs> and John Fitch signed what I assume is the biggest deal of all with World Series of Fighting. All of this, to me, is to say, UFC fighters, save your fucking money. Just because you are getting paid today doesn't mean that you're going to be getting paid forever. So maybe... Don't start that bar with your cousin. What? You you mean the left hook? <laughs> I know it seems like a like a slam dunk. Yeah, it's a can't miss business Maybe idea. Maybe don't buy three four cars. So just like just a, a boat then, like just Josh one Koscheck? boat like Josh Koscheck. Yeah. Yes. Maybe don't get a medallion of your own face encrusted with diamonds like Rick Ross. <laughs> well, now I mean, now you're saying basically just don't have any fun. That's what you're saying. Maybe, hey, maybe, I don't know, invest in some mutual funds. I'm just saying. Here is, here's Chad going to explain passive income to us all now. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Man Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the crazy shit that happened at UFC 158. I'm Chad Dundas from UFC, from, where, where do I work? I, I thought you were unemployed. <laughs> I essentially am. I'm Chad Dennis from ESPN.com. That's been folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. That's the show for this week. We're done. We're through. We're out. I mean, if motherfuckers are showing up every hour on the hour, yeah. do you think that... You were at that point getting pampered out. Yeah. Do you think that they were sitting there and it's like 5.03? Where are these motherfuckers? Is this is all on the